I'm going to go ahead and ask you to open up to 1 Corinthians 12. We, uh, we're going to dance around a little bit, but that is where we're going to kind of start. And most of the stuff that we'll be looking at and covering is in 1 Corinthians 12. So I want to ask Sean, since I just came running in, is that video ready? It is. All right, so, uh, so here's what I'm going to do. Because I, I want to hit the ground running, I want us to go really hard, really fast. The, the objective is this for tonight and for next Wednesday. We are tonight probably not going to be answering some or most of the questions that most of us would have on this topic. What is this versus what is this? All right, we will try our best to get there. Uh, but what we need to do tonight and next week is fight, 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 fight for us to have the most solid biblical understanding of what this topic is. There is a lot of confusion. There is a lot of neglect. There is a lot of misuse uh, over this. And so what we are going to do tonight and next week, we are going to hug the Bible what does it say concerning spiritual gifts? And then, depending on how the conversation goes over the next few weeks, you know, week three and week four, we may still, with one hand on the trunk of the tree, step out on a limb and say some things. Well, I have experienced this. I have seen this. I have heard this. And then, given that we have that biblical prism, then to filter that information, have conversations that are a little bit in the gray because the Apostle Paul in particular doesn't tell us everything that we would want to know on the topic. So I want us to know that we are grounded in what the Bible says before we get into any other conversations, which is usually when then people start getting very squirrely and weird and odd and bizarre. Does, does this make sense? Jesus, help us. Um, Lord, first and foremost, thank you for today. Thank you for the rain. Thank you for new mercies. Thank you for an opportunity to gather in a room where we're protected from rain. Uh, thank you for your word. Thank you for the gift of your son and salvation. Uh, thank you that we are saved by grace and not works, not by how smart we are or think we are. Lord, thank you that it is all by your love. And tonight, Lord, I ask and plea and beg that you would just help us, that you would be our teacher and our guide as we open up your word. And as we consider a topic, Lord, that, uh, as I said, is very neglected, confusing, misused, and scary, and so forth. So, Lord, just give us wisdom, enlighten us, Lord, and I pray more than anything that we would honor you and that we would be grounded in your scriptures fully, uh, not just for the sake of it, Lord, but that we would be a church united on mission for your glory, for the furtherance of the gospel, which is why we are here. So, Lord, just I, I thank you for all who have shown up, those who may be on their way, Lord, and just bless this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's try this. And run this really loudly because part of this video is really hard to understand. Please note this. He did not go there to receive a prophecy over him, but 
That's what he got. But the reason why God allowed it, and this is what I asked him about today, he said, I allowed it in order for that young man to get into the tent. Because God had to draw you by his spirit. He's given wisdom. God said, there's a piece of information I'm to release to you, and I would not have been able to meet you had there not been a commotion, say the Lord. But the Lord said, son, in this anointing tonight, and from this day forward, Brother Shekinah glory of the Holy Ghost began to speak into your heart. Yes, there might be things that seem a little different or strange to you, my son, but the Lord said, I am asking of thee this night. He said that even as you stand before what seems to be a strange and unusual event for you, he said, no, that it was predestined for such a time as this in this land and in this region. Raise your hands because God's going to do something for you tonight, son. Think of this as a weather forecast. Here's what you got here. You got your catcher with the covering rag prepared to potentially catch him should he get slain. This is Pastor Scott Rodriguez. This is your prophetess Muldoon. Please note, he was sitting in a chair. She pulled him out of the congregation to supposedly speak a word that she said. She said it. She received a word from God to deliver to him. Now, as we continue our saga, she, the prophetess, is about to touch the pastor. I want to tell you something beautiful from God. God said your hands belong to him, and you know that. And your hands are anointed of God to be a peacemaker and a bridge builder and a worshiper and an interceder and a seeker and a man Those are pretty positive words, wouldn't you say? The prophetess Muldoon stating here, a man of God, you love God, you're seeking him with your whole heart. Once again, please note, the pastor was called out of the congregation. Having received these rather positive and flattering supposed revelations from God through the prophetess, the pastor, he didn't come here to do it, he decided, uh, I gotta say something rest of these seven days that she's here, any of you that come and any of our friends that come, we need to be deeply respectful. We need to show an intense love to them. But above all of those things, we need to spend all of our time at the deepest place of prayer, praying that God indeed would protect all those who hear this false message that comes from her lips. Because God's message is not miracles, but that the shed blood of Jesus Christ would cleanse humble sinners. And when miracles are emphasized, Jesus is denied. Yes, no, no. <laughs> How did that change on a dime? One moment she's prophesying, saying wonderful things about him. He reminds her this is about the gospel of Jesus, not false prophecies, not false miracles. And suddenly, hmm, everything seemed to change. You are rebuked, you are removed from my tent, and if you don't believe in miracles, that's not, you will need a miracle one day. Get this on film, because he'll need a miracle one day, and when he needs it, he'll know not to come to my church. Huh. Do it. Now, I could be wrong. I thought a second ago she said he's a man of God who loves the Lord. 
Now he gets escorted from the tent and called a devil? I'm glad my tent is here. Now, this is worth exploring for a moment. One minute, nice prophecies. The next minute, calling the very same man a demon. Best I understand my Old Testament, this would disqualify the prophetess from actually being a prophet. Why? If you prophesy wrongly, saying that you are speaking from God, which is exactly what she said, then you're not actually from God. This is a great example of these individuals, these false prophets who get up and make proclamations, typically very gen... Okay, wait a second, hold on, wait, wait. Adrian, I'm gonna, I, I'm getting a word. Adrian, you are going to run a TV camera with headphones on your head. So I, I understand that part of that video was really hard to understand what was happening. I'll, I'm going to post this on our Facebook group tomorrow so you can listen to it. So the backstory is there is basically this tent revival thing that is happening led by this lady who is a prophetess. And so she's doing this thing and she's going on and on about miracles. About Mary. She's a prophet. She hears from God. She prophesies, etc. And it's all about miracles, and you need a miracle, and you need a word from God, and all this stuff. And she happens to randomly call this man from the audience up front. And he comes up, and she starts saying these wonderful platitudes, which in fact should be true of any believer. Hey, you love God. You're going to be an ambassador for God. You're going to be a reconciler. All these things that should be said of anyone who has said they're going to be a follower of Jesus, these things should be true of. Well, as she's going on about this, because the emphasis is on miracles, the emphasis is all that, he finally says, she's a false prophetess. He says, because the emphasis of the Bible, the teachings of Scripture and the mission, isn't about miracles and words of faith and all these wonderful things. The emphasis is the gospel, Jesus crucified, the resurrection, and the life that we have in him. And as soon as he gets into the wonderful beauty and the simplicity, the exquisiteness of the gospel, she takes the microphone away and starts calling him accursed. So all of these prophecies that she starts spewing toward this guy one minute, reverse it. She said, I have received a word from God. You are X, Y, Z, and you're going to do X, Y, Z. In the very next minute, you are accursed, banished from the tent. And she kept saying, my church. I don't know if you heard that. She kept saying, my church, which is like awfulness, right? So I wanted to show that uh, because of this, and this actually is in light of the verses that I covered this past Sunday. So 1 John chapter 2, verse 18 says, Children, it is the last hour, as you have heard, that Antichrist is coming. So now many Antichrists have come. This is the day and the age that we live in. Antichrist, false teachers, heretics running around saying things that are not true. Claiming, thus saith the Lord, when the Lord is not saying thus to them or through them. First uh, John 2.26, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. So we live in a world where there are these people that are running around literally trying to deceive us from the, who Jesus is, what Jesus is all about. 
Jesus' own words in Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 through 23, he said, Beware of false prophets. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Here comes the nitty-gritty. Not everyone who says to me, so this is Jesus says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, the day of judgment, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And cast out demons in your name? And do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So, in the Gospels, Jesus himself, in the epistles like 1 John, there is a warning of these false teachers, false prophets, false miracle workers running around. And it's like this is characteristic of the days between the first coming of Jesus 2,000 years ago and when he returns. Is this clear? So there, I think, in that video, we saw a really clear example of one. And when the guy just starts preaching the gospel, he takes the mic- she takes the microphone and says, this is a curse you are. Isn't that amazing? Like if she was a real prophet, she would have just been amening what he said, you know, except for the fact that he called her a false prophet. But the rest of it she should have like, been listening to, right? Um, so this is the reality. There are false teachers, charlatans running amok everywhere. Some of them know that they're teaching falsehoods. They do it anyway because they're looking for what? They're looking for money or fame. Some of them actually do believe that that's true of them. They're self-deceived. Okay? Here is why I bring this up specifically tonight. Usually, when we see something like that, there's an overreaction. So about 100 years ago, a little over 100 years ago, there was a movement that began... And it was this rise of what we would consider the charismatic church, Pentecostalism and so forth. In the United States, over 100 years ago, there was a move toward more of this stuff. And I'm not going to say that this is necessarily wrong or bad back then. But as all movements tend to do, it started to change, evolve, morph, and turn into other things. To the point that nowadays we have like these things happening. Uh, false teachers such as a Benny Hinn and all of these other folks that, that you hear about and see. So those of us that I believe are true followers of Jesus, we tend to have this overreaction. I so don't want to have anything to do that is that false. I'm going to run 180 degrees to the other side of the spectrum. Because I don't want to associate with false teachers. I don't want to have anything to do with false teachers. So we run as far as we possibly can from that kind of shenaniganism. You like that one? Why not? Here's the problem with an overreaction. The Bible does teach that there are gifts and miracles, prophecy, these gifts of the Spirit. But we've gone, now, and I'm, I can't speak to everyone, but maybe it's just me. 
growing up in a particular brand or style or stream of Christianity where we're so afraid of anything like that that we've run so far that now it's almost sterilized and cookie cutter and there is no sense of where's the spirit and where's the power. And we're, like, we're always preaching about it, but where is it? But we keep it at such arm's length that we don't have it, don't, don't experience it, and we're scared of it, quite frankly. So I think that a study like this should help us, hopefully, to correct what is false, correct the overreaction, so that we may be exactly where we should be. Uh, here's a little quote that I, I read. The solution to the abuse of spiritual gifts is not prohibition, but correction. And this is what these few weeks are about. We're not here to condemn. It's not our job to condemn. We're not going to prohibit. Our job is to correct. We want everyone to, what does the Bible say? And to walk the line that is in Scripture. The solution to an abuse of the spiritual gifts is not disuse, but proper use. Does that make sense? So that, that's what we're after in this. We want to actually take a very sober, objective look. What does the Bible say? And that should be enough. It's frustrating And one day, I'll give the Apostle Paul an earful. Paul, why did you leave so much in the open and in the gray? Why didn't you share? And and he's just going to say what I already know to be true. But God gave it to me, and I told you what you needed to hear. Um, So what we need to do is we need to trust that Scripture tells us everything that we need to hear. It may not tell us everything we want to hear, but we have to trust that it gives us everything that we need to know on the topic. And so... All that, that's just page one. I've got eight pages. And don't worry, I don't need to go through all this because if we don't, I'm just going to save it for next week. It'll save me a little bit of work. So that'll be a, that'll be a good thing. All right. Um, t- as we get into this topic, I understand that this is a controversial topic. If we went through here and everyone shared what you actually thought about spiritual gifts, we probably would end up fighting. I think this, I think that, I've seen this, I've seen that, you're a liar. And so there's a lot of controversy uh, along, along the issue. So there are probably some in the room that are cessationists. You may not even know what that word is, but you're a cessationist. Because there are some people that think that the Bible teaches that these gifts ended in the first century. That once the last apostle died in the last dot of the scriptures was written that the spiritual gifts ceased at that point. So there are cessationists. Uh, then there are those people that are kind of on the other side. They're like obsessed. Everything's a spiritual gift. What's a spiritual gift? What's yours? What's mine? Like, like everything's about spiritual gifts. And there's an inordinate obsession and overemphasizing on it. Think about it. And in the entire New Testament, there's a three, four verses in Romans 12. There's not even the whole chapter of 1 Corinthians 12. Really, it's all about the church. It's a little bit about gifts. One line in 1 Timothy 4, two lines in 1 Peter 4. Like, it's so little that it's mentioned, but some people are like, everything is about the gifts. So there can be an over-fascination with it. Uh, then there's some people that actually think that anytime anything that appears to be a spiritual gift, it's dem- demonic. That's just the work of the devil. Someone speaking in tongues, that's the devil. Well, 
Are you sure? How do you know that? How can you say that? Like, can't God do the supernatural too? Like, so we got to be careful. There are those people in the crowd. There are those who, um, those of us, I probably fall closer in this camp. I believe in them, but I tend to be very skeptical if I ever hear about them. I know what 1 Corinthians 12 says, but if someone starts telling me about someone got healed through a prayer, my, well, I wasn't there. I didn't see it. I'm not sure. Can I believe it? How do I know that that's real? So th- there's a lot of different perspectives that, that take place here. Uh, and then to further complicate it, then, and this will happen in a few weeks where we get to have a lot of fun, there's word of wisdom and word of knowledge and there's prophecy and there's discernment. What's the difference? I do not know. And anyone who dare tell you this is what this means and this is what this one is, I would say keep them at arm's length. Because there is no way anyone could dogmatically 100% tell you what each one of those is or isn't or what the difference is between them. There is just, I'm agnostic on the subject. There is not enough information in the Bible for us to know which is which which I think that we as Westerners, Socratic Hellenists, we think in a very unique way. We love everything in compartments and categories and buckets and in sequences, and I got to know what this is. That's how we're taught to think in the West. Paul wasn't a Westerner. Paul was a Hebrew. He thought like an Easterner. He thought more organically, synergistically, holistically. So when he approached certain topics like this, he was just speaking in these grand generalities. Not necessarily trying to say this is what this is, but in the church you will generally experience something-ish like this. But we as Westerners, we got to get out of our Western mind and think more the way the writer thought. Am I following that? Everybody Socratic in here? Hellenistic? Yes, you are. (laughs) If if you grew up in a public school system, I promise you, you are. All right. Um, So it's a controversial issue. As we approach this, let's make a deal. And if you you stay seated, I assume that we're shaking hands on this. We're not going to argue about this. This is a secondary issue at best. What I mean by that, this is not central to the gospel. Jesus is God, is central to the gospel. The trinity of God, that there's one God in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, is central to the gospel. Uh, That we are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone, that is central to the gospel. Jesus went in the the grave, came up on the third day, central to the gospel. Um, Those things, you know what, we... It's, we'll, I'll die on that hill. I will argue. I will fight for those truths. This, if there's some level of disagreement, we need to be able to be okay with disagreeing on some things. This is not worth splitting a church over or breaking fellowship over or causing any kind of issues over. There is space here to have differences of opinion about some things Because, again, the Bible doesn't so spell it out, like the Trinity or the penal substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ, etc. Okay? All right. So I I just want us to understand that it is a secondary issue. But because it is taught in Scripture, we should fight for unity on the subject as much as possible. Um, 
So here's the goals of the study. I'm just going to want to lay these four things out. Here is what we're trying to accomplish. Number one, biblical understanding. What does the Bible say? Number two, unity. Here's a a quote from theologian uh, Wayne Grudem. A healthy church will have a great diversity of gifts, and this diversity should not lead to fragmentation, but to a greater unity among believers. So we should come out of this in a few weeks with actually closer together, understanding how we work together. Uh, Number three, in all things, bring glory to God. If we're going to have a disagreement, let's disagree in a way that honors the Lord. If we're going to use a gift, let's use it in a way that honors the Lord, which I think is the only way they can be used anyway. Uh, And the fourth thing is gospel furtherance. The reason we're given these different gifts as followers of Jesus is for the sake that other people would become followers of Jesus and that we would grow as followers of Jesus. That's the point. So that's like a red flag number one. If something is not making disciples and growing disciples, you can best be assured that is not a spiritual gift. And, and I can actually, and I'll make that up that point a little bit later if we can get to that point. So are we in agreement so far over those conditions? I'll close my eyes for two seconds if you want to leave the room. We just shook hands. All right, that, that's what we're here to do. All right. Let me, let me give, and I, I know I'm speaking fast. I, is this getting recorded? All right, this, this is getting recorded, so th- there we go. So you can go back and listen to it. Uh, I'll probably post notes afterwards, like tomorrow. I may actually post my outline so you can have scripture references. So I don't want you to see it, like trying to write down every word. You'll get it. You know, I just want us to listen, and I want to have enough time and space at the end for some, a little bit of Q&A. One thing I meant to say. I am not an expert on this. Uh, I told John Adams early on the phone, whose ever idea it was to have a Bible study on spiritual gifts, I should kick their rear. And it's my own because it was my idea. I am not an expert. I, I just know what some scriptures talk about. It's something that I've been praying about for years, learning about for years, stepping into for years trying to make some sense into. So I'm just trying my best to impart upon you the little bit that God has revealed to me, and hopefully over time we will all grow in this together. So, all right. Here's a little bit of canonical context. Here's something you get like on a Wednesday night or a Rick Bible study. You get words that you don't necessarily get on a Sunday morning. Canonical context. What I mean by that is uh, we got the full canon of Scripture, so that's an old fancy vocabulary for everything from Genesis to Revelation, the canon of Scripture, right? The canonical context is what, it, what does the entirety of the Bible reveal to us as a whole? So how about this? In the Old Testament, did Moses perform miracles? Wow, everybody's really apprehensive. So, so the answer is yes. I, I understand fully what you say. Obviously, God always is the orchestrator, originator of the miracle. It's not the end of it, but through Moses, right? Was he the conduit? Was the prophet Elijah the conduit of miracles? <laughs> Do we see agents of God's miracles in the Old Testament? 
<laughs> is it a trick question? Some of you know me too well. Like everything's a trick question in the Bible study. All right. Um, okay. So miracles through Moses and others. Exodus chapter 35, verses 30 and 32. It actually says, Then Moses said to the people of Israel, See, the Lord has called by name Bezazel, the son of Uri, son of Ur, of the tribe of Judah, and he has filled him with the Spirit of God, with skill, with intelligence, with knowledge, and with craftsmanship to devise artistic designs to work in gold and silver and bronze. So here was an individual called to construct the tabernacle, in the Old Testament, and God gives this unique gifting of skill with his hands, knowledge, how to do it, wisdom. So it's not just kind of miracles, but that doesn't seem particularly miraculous, right? Someone that can just take bronze and shape it. But even in the Old Testament, that was considered a spiritual gift. How about this one? In Second. Samuel chapter 12, the prophet Nathan is sent by God to confront King David after David's secret sin with Bathsheba. And Nathan calls him out. Secret knowledge? Oh, well, is that the gift of discernment? Is that the gift of wisdom? Is that the gift of prophecy? Is that the gift of, of knowledge? Like, which is it? I don't know. Right now, for the moment, I don't care. All I'm saying is that in the Old Testament, we see something of a unique imparting of supernatural knowledge upon a human agent to disclose someone something in the life of another. So my point in bringing up those scenarios is that we see unique giftings in the Old Testament. Now, not the norm. We don't see this necessarily with every king or with every prophet or with every priest or everyone who was part of God's people. We see it a bit selectively. It happens a good amount, but that's only because, the, I mean, the Old Testament spans how many thousands of years, right? But, but so we see it, but it's not the norm. Following? So then we read in Joel, which is in the Old Testament, Joel chapter 2, verses 28 and 29, and it shall come to pass afterwards that I will pour out my spirit. So God is speaking. I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit. So here's the thing. We see these manifestations, giftings, Small level, Old Testament. Not everyone. There's a prophecy saying, but days are coming when that you're actually going to see upon all of God's people. Is that clear from the Joel text? So then we turn the page and we come up to the gospel. So Jesus comes on the scene. And it says in Luke chapter 4, verses 14 through 19, And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, And a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogue. So here he comes, Jesus, filled with the Spirit. And the first thing he does is teach. Footnote that. 
being glorified, I'm sorry, uh, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all, and he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up and was his, as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read, to teach. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. So he uses an Old Testament messianic text to point back to himself that he's reading to God's people at this point. Uh, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So here's the point. Old Testament we see these manifestations, these gifts that happen. They're not the norm, they're not everyone. The prophecy is everyone's going to get it in the new covenant age. Here comes Jesus, the one who brings about the new covenant. He's filled with the Spirit, and all of a sudden, he starts teaching in this way that no one has ever taught before. I know he's God. I know he knows everything, but it's specifically in the context of being filled with the Spirit. Something about that the, the anointing, the receiving of the Spirit now empowers teaching unlike has ever happened before. He go, and then we know what happens after that. He goes on, raises the dead, heals the lame, the, gives sight to the blind, all sorts of miracles, right? Yes? Thank you. All right. His ministry was characterized by prophecy, supernatural knowing. John chapter 1 Nathaniel, this guy Nathaniel walks up to him and says, hey, Nathaniel, I know where you were, that other place you were sitting under a tree when Philip found you. Healings, miracles, amazing teaching. Okay, well, that's Jesus. He's God. That's fine. But what about Luke chapter 10? In Luke chapter 10, Jesus sends 72 people out, 72 of his disciples out on a little mission trip. And it actually tell, he tells them before they go, you're going to heal the sick, you're going to evangelize, and you're going to cast out demons. And they, all three of those things happen. Okay? So, pattern in the Bible. We see it happen in a small degree in the Old Testament. It's prophesied that it's going to happen on a universal sense within believers, not everyone, within believers, the church. Jesus comes, who is the Christ, right? He is our ambassador who we're to imitate. We see it lived out fully in his life. Then he sends out his disciples, and we see them start to do it. After Jesus' death, resurrection, he says in Acts chapter 1, 8, right before he ascends up to heaven, he says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea. So there is a receiving of the Holy Spirit, which means a receiving of divine supernatural empowerment, specifically to make disciples, in other words, for the Great Commission. We see this happen come true in Acts chapter 2. The Holy Spirit comes. They're able supernaturally, miraculously to speak in other language, human languages. The gospel goes forward. Peter, in that text, refers back to that Joel prophecy. No, 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 this isn't random. This was prophesied hundreds of years ago. What you're seeing, this, this ability to speak in other languages, this was part of what Joel was prophesying so many years ago. So then you go to Acts chapter 3. 
John and Peter, they're just walking. Layman, uh, we don't have any gold or silver. What we got, we give to you. Stand up. The dude stands up. So the disciples didn't give healing or through them, God provides healing to that man. And you keep reading in Acts, and this seems a bit normal. Like these unique empowerments, manifestations, whatever these things are, you see them kind of normal in the life of the church. So then you turn to the epistles from, you know, uh, from Romans on. Romans 8, uh, 12, 1 Corinthians 1, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, 14, 1 Timothy 4, 1 Peter 4. It talks about these gifts in such a way that I think these are supposed to be normal. This is like the full, like this is scripture from beginning to end. Like this is how it should be. Like it, it shouldn't be any, any weird, it shouldn't be weird for us in any way. So if you're familiar with this theologian lived a while ago, B.B. Warfield, he said, we are justified in considering it characteristic of the apostolic churches. So those who follow the teachings of the apostles of scripture, right? We should consider it characteristic of the churches that such miraculous gifts should be displayed in them. The exception would be not a church with, but a church without such gifts. The apostolic church was characteristically a miracle-working church. So, I will pause there. Questions or thoughts, and I know this is scary. This is not a small group. There's a lot of people. Not everybody knows everybody. But I, I wanted to stop just real quick. Any, I know not because I've been speaking fast, and I want to slow down and catch my breath. But any thoughts, questions, and just know this is as safe a place as there is to disagree or to have a question or to make a comment. So, floor is yours. We should put music in the audio for the, the recording here. Oh, wow. Okay, so for the sake of the recording, Jimmy Bong asked my, to give my argument as to why the spiritual gifts have not ceased. All right, so sure, why not? There is a story. A school of thought, and it is a significant school of thought. There are some very mighty, wise, godly men and women who, be, who are cessationists. Um, I just happen to disagree with them. Their argument comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Um, I'm going to get there, and I'm going to actually use that verse to say the complete opposite of what they say. But in essence, the cessationist argument is... God gave the gifts in the first century to give legs to the gospel. It, it needed to penetrate a pagan world. Uh, they didn't have the Bible written out. Uh, there were a multitude. There is a polytheistic society, a lot of gods, right? And so there needed to be miracles. But, and usually the cessationists are in regards to what we would consider the miraculous gifts. So real quick, 
typically people split up the gifts into two categories. The miraculous ones, speaking in tongues, interpreting tongues, uh, healings, miracles, that kind of stuff. And then the not-so-miraculous ones, teaching, serving, hospitality, mercy, etc. Cessationists will, for the most part, be okay with the non-miraculous variety. Yeah, yeah, we see them happen. Uh, they're true. It's the miraculous ones, the more sensational ones, that are typically, no, 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 those aren't for today. Or if they are for today, we see them only in the third, third world nations where the Bible isn't been, hasn't been translated into that language because if you don't have a miracle to support it, then it won't be in, accepted or embraced. Um, so there's really no true biblical argument or verse that would call for the cessation of the gifts. It is, I've never seen them, I don't see them, um, and so they must have ceased back then. Kind of a, that's kind of sort of the argument, but it's not really a biblical. Perry, do you remember anything about it in particular? But that's really summed it up, right? Yeah, so it's, um, or Shannon, do you remember anything else? I mean, does that wrap it up? Okay. Um, I asked these guys because they're fellow seminarians, so they've been to seminary. They got their master's. So uh, if you disagree with me, go disagree with them too. Um, <laughs> so that's why, and, and I, I think part of it is the overreaction to that wing of Christendom that is so off its rocker that it has sent others to the polar extreme. And after a while, when you, when you cut that, that link to, the, to a supernatural reality, after a while, it be, that becomes your reality. And so nothing can be supernatural because anything supernatural must be demonic. It, I mean, I it it think it's just the lens is that myopic, that, sh that narrow. I think that's why. As to why I don't believe that they have ceased today is because, one, the Bible never says that, that it would cease. It, no, I'm sorry, I, I backed that up. That's incorrect. It does say that it will cease. In 1 Corinthians 13, in my, my interpretation of the text, says that it will cease when Jesus returns. And I would say that we need the miraculous just as much in our culture as they may have needed in the first century pagan world. Like, uh, if I have a neighbor who doesn't know anything about Jesus, not you, Steve Emery, but if I have a neighbor who doesn't know, need Jesus, who doesn't know Jesus, they, what's different between them and a person in the first century that needed Jesus? Like, if a miracle is needed for one, a miracle is needed for another. Like, it, in, you know what I'm saying? So it's, it just doesn't really make sense that it would have ceased necessarily. But I say that as humbly as I can. Did everyone follow that one? Jenny Hart asked, should we see those miraculous gifts displayed more often? Uh, yes and no. Yes, in the sense that I believe it's often our disbelief somewhat hinders like we would see Jesus say that that there's a places he would go in people's disbelief so nothing can stop God but there's a place where if there's not faith God just doesn't he chooses sovereignly not to work there um, so I'll say yes if God's people if we actually would trust and believe I think we would see more 
But at the same time, this is all God's sovereign activity. So no amount of faith is going to now make God's miracles take place. So we have to be extremely cautious, right? Pray in faith, work, live in faith. But that doesn't coerce God to do what we want him to do. All right, let's move on. Let's, let's try to unpack this a little bit further. Let me give you a very formal academic uh, of the gifts. And this is by theologian Wayne Grudem. A spiritual gift is any ability that is empowered by the Holy Spirit and is used in the ministry of the church. I mean, that is as basic and simple a definition as there can be. A spiritual gift is any ability that is empowered by the Holy Spirit and is used for ministry in the ministry of the church. First, everybody, no, now we're getting into our text. First Corinthians 12. Everybody there? First Corinthians 12.1 says, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. So we should be informed as to what it is that the Bible says. Okay, I don't want you to be ignorant. Now concerning spiritual gifts, the word spiritual gifts in the original Koine Greek that this was written in is the Greek word pneumatikon. The word literally means things from the Spirit. Now our English translations Typically, most of them will translate verse 1 to say spiritual gifts, right? It doesn't say spiritual things. It says spiritual gifts. The reason why is that the writer, the, the translators, like the ESV, which I typically use, the English Standard Version, interject the word gifts there because 1 Corinthians 12 talks about the gifts so much that the things must be gifts. So we see... Um, the word gift occur five times in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 4, verse 9, 28, 30, and 31. So the things from the Spirit here refers to these gifts from the Spirit. So there's five times that the word gifts occurs in 1 Corinthians 12 is the Greek word charismaton. The root of that word in the Greek is the word charis, which is the word grace. So, charismaton are gracious gifts. So, what are spiritual gifts? They are gracious gifts or gifts of grace. That is the technical, formal definition of how to think through this. So, when someone's talking about spiritual gifts, just make sure that whatever is happening, whatever you're seeing, experiencing, whatever... Does this have the sense of it being a gift of grace, a gifting of grace? Does this have something to do with graciousness activity of God, the gracious activity of God Almighty? So spiritual gifts are gifts of grace, which means we don't earn them. You do not earn. Can you earn grace? No, because by definition, grace is unearnable. By definition, grace is a, it's a gift. Okay, so these are gifts of grace. You don't earn them. You don't deserve them. They're the work of God's grace. So the emphasis, before we get into anything else in 1 Corinthians 12, before you know anything else about the spiritual gifts, is 
that the emphasis is on the giver, not the gift. Always remember that. The conversations usually about spiritual gifts become so much about these things and these gifts that you lose sight of who gave it and what they're for. What gift do you have? Which one do I have? Like, which one is Can I get another one? And it's almost like we're trading Pokemon cards. Like, it's, it's, just, it's a really bizarre thing that takes, like, I've got a little board, don't I? That I use, po- I didn't use baseball cards. I use a six-year-old's Pokemon card collection. Um, so anyway, the emphasis is always on the giver. It is a gracious gift. It's all about God. Gifts are not talents. There's a difference between a spiritual gift, a pneumaticon, a charismaton. There's a difference between that, what the Bible says, and a talent. Uh, believers and non-believers both have talents. Believers and non-believers can have musical talent, math talent, bow skills talent. Like There's all kinds of talents that a person can have. So... I don't even want to know what you said. <laughs> um, those are part of the DNA. Like you're born with that DNA. Um, you may or may not use it for God's glory or God's purposes. That's a talent. A spiritual gift is different in that you're not born with a spiritual gift. You're reborn with a spiritual gift. It comes at the point of salvation or rebirth. There's a difference there. That gift, whatever it may be, did not exist before you met Jesus. And at some point on that day that you met Jesus, you received one, maybe more spiritual gifts, or maybe down the line you may get others. But those gifts, those empowerments and capacities were not there prior to an understanding and an embracing in the gospel. So it's not a talent. They're different. Um. 1 Corinthians 12, 7. Look at this. This is important for us understanding what this is. It says in that verse, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit. In the context of these verses, the word manifestation there is referring to the pneumaticon. Manifestation is in the context of charismaton, meaning the word manifestation is in the context of whatever these spiritual gifts are. Manifestation is directly Pointing to that. So the word manifestation, um, I won't bore you with the long Greek word, means to make an appearance, right? If something manifests itself, it means it has revealed itself. It's shown itself. It's made, it's made an appearance. So when this, this, it's made itself known. A spiritual gift isn't something external to God. It's God making himself known. That's what a gift is. So again, pneumaticon, things of the Spirit. Charismaton, gracious gift. They're a manifestation of God in the life of a believer. What is a spiritual gift? It is God's abiding presence making himself known in and through a follower of Jesus in order to further his purposes. That's a gift. That's what it is. It's God in that moment going public through a person. 
That's a gift. It's God disclosing himself in us, to us, and through us. So here's a long quote from this guy named Sam Storms. Spiritual gifts are not God bestowing to his people something external to himself. This is usually how we think of gifts, or maybe that's just how I've always thought of it. Like, like God's up in heaven, and he's up there. He's just throwing out gifts. Like, all right, he wants teaching, and like, he wants prophecy. All right, take this one. Now you got mercy. And it's if we're just down here like somehow like a basket just receiving these things apart from God. I think that's usually how we think of them. That's not what, how they are. So spiritual gifts are not God bestowing to his people something external to himself. They're not some tangible stuff or substance separated from God. Spiritual gifts are nothing less than God himself in us, energizing our souls, imparting revelation to our minds, infusing power in our wills and working his sovereign and gracious purposes through us. Spiritual gifts must never be viewed deistically as if a God out there has sent something to us down here. Spiritual gifts are God present in, with, and through human thoughts, through human deeds, and through human words, and through human love. Short of it. It is not something. It is God disclosing, working. It's his presence abiding in us, doing what God does. That's a gift. That's the gift. That's the pneumaticon. Things of the Spirit. That makes sense, right? A manifestation of God making an appearance. A gracious gift. God in His grace using us. That's a gift. Is that helpful? Or is that confusing? Audience participation time. That clears some stuff up? You said helpful. Anyone else? Anyone's like, I don't know. I'm still not sure. I'm a little confused. It's okay. I am too. Nathan, maybe kind of sort of. Not yet. <laughs> I, I will, we'll, we'll get there in a real minute. We'll have a segue to that. But yes. All right, Nathan, you went like this. Kind of, sort of, not sure. Can you put... English words behind that. It, about what in particular or in what way? So I'll retrace my words, see if I can help you out a little bit. So it, it might be my, the school of thought that I grew up in, where it, the impression is that you get a gift and as if God just hands them out to his, to his people. As if it's something, whatever that thing is, that just he hands out, right? What I'm saying and what I believe the scriptures say is that a gift isn't something that God gives us like that. It is God himself more actively, personally, uh, demonstratively in us, at work in us, in a, in a particular moment, in a very particular way, for a very particular purpose. So I'll go ahead and answer Justin's question to give an example. So, for instance, um, regardless of what you may call it, there are moments, for instance, where uh, a believer, like, I had this thing, this person, friend of mine, came to mind. And I just felt this incredible need to pray for them. I don't know why I hadn't even talked to them in a year. But, man, I started praying. Next thing I know, the next day I saw on Facebook, they happened to be in a car accident. 
and they're going to be healed and going to be okay. But God protected them. Like in that moment, that wasn't something God gave you. That was God's spirit in that person impressing a thought himself in such a way as I pray for this person now, intercede. That's God's presence. That's not something he throws at you apart from himself. That's him working in you very personally. Did that, was that helpful? Was that your question? All right, so here, this is one of the things to me that makes the conversation so confusing. There is a sense in which all of these gifts are actually very normal. There's a gift of faith. Every believer should have faith. There's a gift of mercy. Every believer should have mercy. There's a gift of teaching. Every believer should be able to teach. There's a gift of discernment. Every believer should have discernment. Um, you can get into things like a uh, gift of healings. Well, God could use the prayer of anyone to bring about healing in someone. So there's a degree to where all of this should be very common in the life of everyone. I think that the distinction is that there are moments where that thing that should be very normal in the life of all believers is heightened exasperated, empowered. It blows up in, in more than your typical day-to-day Christian way of doing. So someone does you wrong and you don't flip them off. Every believer should abide by that. Uh, you may be so wretched that you not flipping them off may be the most incredible gift of the Spirit ever displayed. <laughs> um, Justin's question, everyone to hear it. Um, drunk driver kills someone's family, and the person then is capable of hugging the drunk driver, uh, forgiving them, loving them, visiting them in jail, and their friends. Uh, every believer's called to that level of forgiveness. Uh, but there, that seems particularly extraordinary, right? I, I wouldn't be opposed to necessarily calling that a gift of the Spirit, a gift of mercy. Um. I think where we get in, I think this is why I started earlier saying we live in the Western world. We're all Socratic in our thinking. We're all Hellenistic in our thinking. Is it or is it not a gift? If it is, which one is it? At what level, what degree? Is it a level four gift or is it a level eight? Like We, we love categories, compartments, buckets, lists, sequence. So I understand why you're asking what you're saying. Um. I can't fully answer the question, but what I, I would say that there may be moments where that is a gift, but I can't say quali- I can't say completely categorically it is every time. That's a good thought. All right, so for the sake of the audio, um, Suzanne asked, you know, does frequency play a role in whether it's a gift or not? And my answer to that is maybe. I think it's possible to experience a gift of the Spirit one time in your life in a very unique time and that was that so i think some gifts are experienced over and over and we grow in that i think sometimes there may be times where it just happens one time because uh, I, I see no evidence that it has to be one or the other uh and what janine mentioned was that it sounds that m- what justin was talking about is a demonstration of the fruit of the spirit which i would agree with clearly empowered by the holy spirit uh but then we're getting into into areas of degree like we're talking about an extreme scenario 
right? Like that person that is able to forgive that person for doing like such an awful atrocity to be able to forgive them and hug them. Like it's hard to imagine that that's not a spiritual gift or at least a manifestation of the spirit. But I can't say yes or no. Because again, scripture is so vague. And I hate to use that word, but that's the only one I've got. It just doesn't give us enough information. Jack. That's right. Yeah, yes. The Holy Spirit dwells within every follower of Jesus. And the Holy Spirit, as he sovereignly wills, chooses which gifts to give, when and where to empower them, how to utilize them. So we'll get into more specifics of that in a little bit. So, all right. Let's list some of these gifts. Romans chapter 12. Yeah, go ahead and turn there. Romans chapter 12. Turn, turn to that real quick. Raise your hand if you're there. Romans 12. All right, we're moving on. Romans 12, starting at verse 4. For as in one body, so here it's talking about a local church scenario. For as in one body, we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individual members of one another. Verse 6, having gifts that defer according to the grace given to us. So there's that word grace in association with gifts, right? It has something to do with grace. Grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. So prophecy, service, teaching, exhortation, giving, leading, and acts of mercy are specifically listed there as gifts of the Spirit. Got that? Okay. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, the gift of giving. Raise your hand once you're there. 1 Corinthians 12. Look at, starting at verse 8. For to one, meaning one person, one member, to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by one spirit, to another the workings of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another interpretation of tongues. So here you have utterance of wisdom, utterance of knowledge, faith, gifts of healing, working of miracles, prophecy, distinguishing between spirits, kinds of tongues, and interpretation of tongues. Those are the gifts that are listed there. Look at the end of the chapter, verse 28. 1 Corinthians 12, 28. And God has appointed in the church, first apostles, second prophets, third teachers. There, there's a little bit of arguing that can happen whether those are specific gifts or those are just offices, but not important for our purposes here. But then it says, miracles, gifts of healing, helping, administration, and kinds of tongues. So at the very least, at the very least, the gifts mentioned are miracles, healing, Helping, administration, and tongues. Uh, if you want to, turn to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter 4, 
Raise your hands when you're there. It's like old school Sunday school, right? Like Bible drill time. <laughs> We're giving out badges. First Peter chapter 4, verses 10 and 11. As each, talking about every individual believer, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. There's that word again. See, these gifts have something to do with grace. It's all about grace. Verse 11, whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. I do wonder if the better way of us thinking about gifts are, is it a speaking gift or a doing gift? I mean, that's, even, that's Paul's, uh, Peter's language right there. Like, instead of us talking about, well, is it really miraculous or is it really ordinary? At the end of the day, if these are all gifts of the Spirit, if these are all gracious gifts, if these are all things of the Spirit, if these are all manifestations of God, they are all supernatural and by definition a bit miraculous. So we just simply need to think of them as like, well, am I just speaking the oracles of God or am I serving God? Is it a speaking or is it a doing and it may just need to keep it that simple instead of coming up with all other kinds of labels and stuff. So there are a few other lists in Scripture that I don't think help our purposes. But for the most part, that those are the main ones. Um, I am of the opinion that the, that the gifts stated in Scripture are not an exhaustive list. I do not think that the Apostle Paul in particular meant to write out every possible spiritual gift that a believer in a church would experience. I don't get that sense from what he, from what he wrote. Um, so there may be various manifestations of the Spirit of God in us and in our church that, well, where does this fall? Is this an utterance of wisdom? Is this pro- I don't know, but it, does it really matter? Because is it God? Is it God who's at working? Is it a gift of grace? Is it furthering the gospel? Is it making disciples? Is it edifying the body? Yeah? Okay. I don't care what we call it. Like, praise God. He's at work. Okay? So I don't think it's meant to be used such as a categorical list. I think he meant to speak in general terms just to give us some sense of the supernatural outworking of God's spirit in the life of a believer in a church. Thumbs up if you're good. Not everybody. I'll keep going. All right, I'll close on this one last little section I got here. Let's talk about the purpose of the gifts. Look at 1 Corinthians 12, verse 7. 1 Corinthians 12, 7 says that these manifestations are given for what? I'm sorry? What's that verse say? 1 Corinthians 12, 7, the manifest, the common good. Thank you very much. They're given for the common good, which leads us to a question. What is the common good? To answer that question, you always, always have to consider the context in which the words are written. Okay? Because it's easy to take anything out and make it whatever, say whatever you want it to. What is the greater context in which the, those words are stated? The greater context, you just have to back up to verse 3. Verse 3 says what? 
if you were to back up to 1 Corinthians 11, it's about the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is all about Jesus. The Lord's Supper is all about the cross. The Lord's Supper is all about the resurrection. The Lord's Supper is all about grace and mercy, the gospel. You flip over to the very next chapter, 1 Corinthians 12, and right there in that verse, it's talking about Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord, right? The context of 1 Corinthians 12 is all about Jesus and the gospel. The common good is the proclamation of that news, of that truth. The common good. These manifestations, these gifts are given that we may share the gospel with those who do not know Jesus. The purpose of the pneumaticon, the charismaton, is for the sake of the Great Commission, making disciples, being fishers of men, witnesses for Christ, ambassadors, persuaders of men. That's context number one. The second context is if you read all of 1 Corinthians 12, it's all about the local church. The whole thing is about the local church. So the, the, it uses the analogy of a body, right? And a body has fingers and toes and armpits and eyelids and, and all these things. It does. Whoever laughed right there. <laughs> um, in that we as individual members of it, we all have different roles because we're different parts of the body. So the common good has something to do with who? The local church. The common good is the gospel. The common good is the local church. These gifts, these manifestations of God in the believer, in and through us, is for the sake of making Jesus famous and for the health of our body, for the protection of our church, for our building up and our edification so that we may all be love feel, faith feel, hope feel followers of Jesus and help others to become Love, feel, faith, feel, hope, feel, followers of Jesus. That's the purpose of these gifts. So, 1 Corinthians 12, 5 says that we use these to serve. It also says that in 1 Peter 4, 10. In 1 Corinthians 12, 6, it says that there's various activities. So there's always action, always movement. Something's always happening. Verse 7 says it's for the common good. 1 Corinthians 12, 25 says that it's for church unity. Um, there's complementary work that's supposed to take place of unbelievers. That's from Romans chapter 12, verse 4. There's a, a building up of the church. That's 1 Corinthians uh, 14, 12. For the glory of God, 1 Peter 4, 11. And lastly, you know what the gifts are for? It's a foretaste of the kingdom that's to come. Now turn, and now I'm going to get to your question, Jimmy. 1 Corinthians 13. 1 Corinthians 13, verses 8 through 10. It says, love never ends. As for prophecies, so here's giving an example of one of these gifts, right? As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, one, another example of one of these gifts as for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. So there in that verse, three specific spiritual gifts are listed. I think to, meant to, to paint a picture of all of them in totality. I'm giving you three of them, but really these are representative of all of them. Okay? 
These three gifts will pass away. Then in verse 9, for we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. The partial is referring to what? The gifts. What's the perfect? Jesus. The gifts right there. That's why I say, Jimmy, that, that those verses do not teach cessationism. And oddly enough, the cessationist uses those verses to hold up their case that the, they ended. The perfect. They, the, those who hold to a cessationist view think that the perfect refers to the uh, finalizing of Scripture. That once John wrote the last letter in, in Revelation, the last letter in the book of Revelation, the perfect has come. Scripture has been completely written. No more need for these gifts. And I don't see how the word, as wonderful as it is, is the perfect. The perfect is Jesus. So there is the, the point of these gifts so that when we see these incredible acts of forgiveness, or mercy, or hospitality, or incredible moments of faith and prayer, a healing that takes place, a prophetic word. Like, all of the ways we see these things happening in the life of the church, they're supposed to kind of whet our appetite. Like, there's a day we won't need these. Because there's going to be, the, there's going to be perfection. We're going to be in the presence of God. We're not going to be, we're going to need, like, gifts of healing because we're going to be with Jesus where all ailments have been repaired. We're not going to need more knowledge or anything. We're going to be in the perfect the perfect knowledge in Jesus himself. So that the point of the gifts is to just kind of get us a bit amped up. Jesus is coming. The kingdom is coming. There's a day where these little partials aren't going to be necessary because it will be complete fulfillment, f- fulfilling, satisfaction, completion. That's the point of them. Common good furtherance the gospel, health of the church, and to get us amped up, Jesus is coming back. Questions? Yes, sir. Pneumaticon literally means things of the Spirit or from the Spirit. That's the technical, what the word means. So, in fir- yes, in 1 Corinthians 12, 1, um, I write to you that you not be ignorant about the spiritual things or spiritual gifts, which is pneumaticon, which means spiritual things. Charismaton is the, word, the Greek word for gift, which occurs in verse 4, 10, 28, 30, five times in that chapter. And that's the word charismaton, which means gracious gift. They're, they're used synonymously. Yes, they're, they're used in synonymous terms. There are technically 13 of them, but yes. An epistle is a letter, a formal letter. So Romans is an epistle. First uh, Peter, Ephesians. That's right. That's right. So um, if, you, if you didn't hear what he, what he mentioned, it's like, couple of things that we'll actually get into specifically next week. One is, um, I think that believers, we confirm and affirm and attest as to our gifts. So we need each other to figure that out, what they are. Because if someone says, I have the gift of so-and-so, and the rest of us are like, no, you don't. Chances are, no, you don't. As much as you may want it, as much as you may think it, no, you don't. 
Um, and so I think that there, because it's part of body life, that there's, there's, it's supposed to be that way. The scary thing is, is when people think that they have a gift and they're operating as like a, as a vigilante. Uh, because that's really when a person gets into trouble. Um, that, in essence, ultimately is the, the beginnings of false teaching, heretics, prophetess Muldan or whatever her name was and that kind of stuff. Um, so there's that. The, the other thing is, I, I believe what Shannon says is correct. God can use us at any time for any reason. His spirit sovereignly can work in a way like, oh, my goodness, I have never been a part of something like that. At the same time, I think because of what it said, First uh, Peter chapter, First uh, Timothy four fourteen, and others, there is supposed to be an understanding within the believer of what gift or gifts I ha- I have, uh, because I'm supposed to be a steward of that gift. I'm supposed to uh, understand it and put it to use and know it, and so. I should know what yours is and what mine is, and as a body, then we know where to go to when certain things are needed and expected. Um, instead of just going to one person for everything or not knowing where to go to, so we're supposed to steward it. So we got to know what it is, loosely understanding that God can use us in any way at any time. So there's that. You know. Anyway, all right. That's a fire hydrant, isn't it? Any other thoughts or questions? Are we going to have just as many people next week, or is it going to be like a fourth of the crowd? (laughs) You'll be here. (laughs) Uh, It takes a lot of work to put this together. I got to know. I got other things to do if no one's going to show up. So, um, no, I'm not looking. I don't want any pats on the back to someone. I just want to know that this is helpful. Okay, um, so don't hesitate to ask whether it's a phone call, a text, an email, Facebook message. Um, I'm going to post the video on our Facebook group tomorrow just so you can hear it. Um, might allow for some interesting comments or conversations. Let's just know that whenever, if I ever post something like that, we're, we're not going to condemn the person. We're not here to judge. We're not, we're not the judge. We are to be discerning. And, and so we do know that there's antichrist and false prophets. Let's help each other to be aware of those. But it, it's not our job to malign or anything. We should, if anything, pray for that lady um, who thinks certain things of herself that are not true. But, yes, sir. I can email them out. Rick at anthem-church.org. If you want the notes, email me. If you do not email me, you will not get them. All right. Perry, would you pray for us?